Good? Yeah, here we go. Psalm 11 today. Had a friend bring this psalm to my attention. I've read this psalm, a, I was about to say a thousand times, probably four times, if I'm being really accurate. Um, it's one of those psalms you read, and you just read it, and you go through your daily devotion, and you're like, okay, I did my part, and you just don't really read it in depth until somebody brings it to your attention one day. Before we read that today, I want to ask you a question. I want to present to you um, this sort of thought. And if I was to ask you, or I am going to ask you, what the biggest threat to the church is today, and I don't mean just the church, like our church or the church in America, but globally, the church, universal, big letter C, church. You know, right now, today, we are in a long succession of people who throughout the world are gathering to worship Jesus Christ. On this day, set apart as tradition to honor and revere the risen Savior, the risen Christ, we are getting together. Some have already worshiped before us. Some are worshiping right now. Some will be worshiping later in the day. But today we have carved out this opportunity as a church to worship Jesus collectively. Now, we shouldn't only be worshiping Jesus today. We should be worshiping Jesus every day in all that we do. But this is the day where we get together and we do it together. Now, that being said, what is the biggest threat against that? Because one of the biggest threats for the last year and a half or year and two months or so has been COVID. It's been this unknown illness that has wreaked havoc on everything. No corner of the world is immune to it. No pun intended. There's no place where you can go to evade it. It's there and we must learn to live with it. And scientists and doctors and whoever else is in charge are doing their best to create uh, treatments and vaccines and all that sort of stuff. And many people would say that's the biggest threat against the church because we're told not to gather, but the word tells us to gather. So that's a pretty big threat. That's a pretty big obstacle for the church. Then you've got things like, well, the economy and I have to work and, you know, it's my only day off. And then we get into sort of superficial stuff. It's the only day off I have. And I don't want to wake up early on the one day off I have a week. And, you know, I could... I could do things around the house. I could go do grocery shopping. There's so many things I could do on Sunday and so many things I could do by not being a part of the church. And then there are those who, well, you know, I don't have to be a part of the church to be a part of the church, which is like saying, I don't have to be married to my wife to be married to my wife. No, absolutely. <laughs> if they become your wife or your husband after you are married to them. There's a ceremony, a ring, a tradition. It's a whole thing. But nevertheless, what's the biggest threat? I think personally that the biggest threat to Christianity is not COVID, it's not violence, it's not threats of persecution, it's not the right uh, you know, and the left and conservatism and liberalism, it's not all of these things, it's not the education system, it's not big pharma, it's not this, it's not that, it's not all of these things. The biggest threat to the church is the same threat that has always been. By the way, I didn't throw Satan into that list because he doesn't get any credit ever. The biggest threat to the church is satisfaction in this world. Being okay with what we have right now, meaning we are seeking pleasure, comfort, and, and all of that within the confines of what we see and feel and touch and experience. And we settle for that. We would just, if we could just have that, then, then we would be okay. We, a better word for this is complacency. We would just go ahead and yeah, as long as nobody's rocking the boat too hard, I'm okay. It's, it's no, it's no, um, 
uh, what's like to struggle to find the word? It's not a coincidence that the times of greatest growth within the church are the times of the greatest persecution of the church. When the pressure is applied to the church, that is when the church explodes. If you go to the book of Acts, you know, they explode on that first day. Then they're shortly thereafter told, stop preaching in the temple. Stop preaching about this risen God of yours. And they keep doing it. And then they're persecuted. And then it just explodes like wildfire. And when it becomes accepted a couple hundred years later as the state religion, that's when Christianity starts to wane. It starts to become complacent. And whenever there has been great persecution, the church grows. I believe it's a shaking of the church. I believe it's God's intention to shake the church out of its complacency. Now, collectively, yes, but individually, you and I have a responsibility to not fall into that complacency, to not see Jesus through the lens of the world, but rather see the world through the lens of Jesus. Everything that we are to do is meant to be done in honor and reverence to the Lord. We serve each other. We serve, uh, we take care of ourselves. We do our job. We raise our children to the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. Will we receive credit for that? Probably there will be people in the world who will go, wow, you're a good mom, a good dad, a good worker. And we'll, we'll know that it's not of my own power that I do anything good because uh, left to my own devices, I am, I am evil, I'm wicked, I'm a sinner, as the word says. And so if I have done anything or accomplished anything good, it is because the Lord is good and he is righteous. The good news is that the darkness of the world, and that's what this complacency is. It's the darkness of the world that penetrates us. It, it, it encompasses us. It comes after us to drown us out. The world doesn't like our light because our light is Jesus's light. The world doesn't hate us because we're giving. The world doesn't hate us because we want to serve them. The world hates us because of Jesus. That's what Jesus said would happen. So we aren't too surprised at that. But that being said, the good news is John chapter 1 verse 4 says that this light cannot be drowned out by the world. The darkness of the world cannot drown out the light. The darkness of sin cannot drown out the light of Jesus Christ. The darkness of Satan, the enemy, cannot drown out the light of Jesus Christ. Our great hope is always in him. We do not need to fear or fret that the darkness will overtake the light. The light cannot be prevailed against. That is the assurance. That is the promise of the word. That is where we find David in Psalm 11. Psalm 11 is this really interesting conversation between David and some other person. It might just be David recollecting, this is King David, this is prior to the monarchy uh, and him being King David. It's maybe an internal monologue of what has transpired. But he writes this song, this poem, this, this expression that becomes part of our canon, becomes part of the Psalms. And Psalm 11 says this, Verse 1, to the choir master of David. That's how we know it's David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the, uh, to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. 
the upright shall behold his face. Let us pray. Lord God, your word, your word is your word. Any, any way we try to describe it is just pales. It's not enough. So Lord, I, I'm praying today that as I, as I preach your word, I, I, as I believe that this is the message for us right now today, that you would take away the veil of your people's eyes, that, that their ears would be open, their hearts would be open to receive your son, Jesus. Not my opinions, not my ways, not what I think is right, but what your word declares. May you receive all of the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to break this down into five parts. It's a short psalm. It's only seven, only seven verses. Number one, David's primary position found in verse 1a, because I'm going to break down verse 1 to 1a and 1b. 1a, this is where David is at the start of this conversation. Number two, invitation to fear. I originally thought this was a temptation to, to fear, but it's actually an invitation to fear by somebody. We don't know who. Could be one of David's mighty men, could be, uh, which is an oxymoron. It could be um, just an enemy saying like, hey, watch out. Number three, who God is. Number four, an imprecatory prayer. We'll talk about that a little bit. And number five, the promise, because it's the promise that we hold on to. It's the promise that God has given us. And there is no wrong way or wrong reason. It is not wrong to hope in and to believe in the promises of the Lord. Now, verse one, or part one, David's primary position. He says, in the Lord, I take refuge. This is who David is. David's hope is in the Lord. David is trusting God as he knows him at this time. I believe that this psalm occurs after the battle with David and Goliath. If you go back to that, he's a young man. He's the youngest of all of his brothers. He's just a sheep herder. And he goes to the camp where the two, the, the Philistines and the Israelites, they're kind of encamped against one another. And Goliath the giant, the literal giant, is standing, taunting and saying, look, any one of you Israelites, come fight me. Let's do a one-on-one -on -one UFC style thing. And whoever can take me down will be victorious. We will, the rest of us will just agree that you're the better warrior. And, and Israel is just shivering, quaking in their strappy feet things, the sandals, whatever they got on. It's probably not boots, but you know what I mean. And they're, sh they're just scared. And David shows up bringing food to his brothers. They think he's just there as a looky-loo, just like, hey, what's going on? Where's all the excitement? He's like, no, dad sent me with food to feed you guys. And he notices this Philistine across the valley yelling at them. And he's like, why isn't anybody shutting this guy up? Which... I don't know. I've met people like this who just have no idea what kind of danger they are in by saying things like that. But that's the point. David wasn't arrogant and boasting. He realized that this Philistine was coming against God and God's people. And he was like, why are we, why are we just accepting this? Why are we just stay, sitting here, not just accepting it, afraid of this Philistine? Why is nobody rising up against him? So David's like, I guess I'll do it. And everybody in the Israeli camp was like, yeah, we guess you should do it. Like they were all willing to let that happen. King Saul's like, wear my armor. And, King, and David's like, your armor's too big. It's too bulky. It's, I'm sure it's got Kevlar and all this other stuff in it that will protect me. But I've got my sling. I've got these rocks. I'm going to be good. Ridiculous. Now we all know the story. David goes. He slays the giant. And uh, we always teach this as a kid's thing. 
And like, if you read the story, David goes and cuts off Goliath's head. And if David's as big as he was, and or excuse me, if Goliath's as big as he was, and if David's as small as he was, that must have been like trying to saw a buffalo in half. Like it just must have been incredible. And so, A, I guess you edit it for the kids, but the reality is this is a gruesome story, but it's also this story of victory. This is the kind of man David is. Now, David will, will sin and sin greatly eventually. He's a sinner at this point, but he will really mess up later on in the book. You keep reading and he commits adultery. He kills a man who he commits adultery with, with, his wife, with that man's wife and you know, relies on the strength of his army rather than the strength of, uh, of the Lord later. And it really ruins his life. His son comes up against him to try to take over. A lot of bad things happen. But in this moment, David is the King David, the the, the warrior David, the David that we look to, the one that is a, a image, a, a, a shadow of who Jesus is to us. David is not Jesus. David is not as good as Jesus. David is a foreshadow or a forerunner of one of the facets of Jesus, this warrior, king, brave and mighty, coming to save his people, standing up against the enemy to take down that which is taking us down. Now, this is a high mark. This is, this is a lot of trust. It's almost as if the danger of life is not factored into his mindset. And so some friend comes along to say, hey, let me remind you of what you're up against. Now, David, along with being a great sinner and a great warrior, uh, was a great enemy to King Saul. And meaning King Saul was continuously going after David. David was revered by the people. That he was anointed to be king. Saul didn't like that. Saul was uh, at times demon-possessed, paranoid, arrogant, prideful, and sought to take out David. Now, most likely that's what's occurring here. Somebody is saying, hey, Saul's army's all around you. The reality is he's going to take your life. The reality is there is great danger out there. Specifically, flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Hey, they're coming after you. They got arrows. They're just firing them off into the dark. If it's not a specific arrow from the, from the hands of an assassin, just a random arrow could take you out at any minute. You know, this past week, our country invaded, or not invaded, but attacked another country in retaliation from attack on our country and our allies and different things. Yet again, an another thing to worry about. Last year, it seemed like every, every week, every two weeks, every month, we had some new thing. And I don't want to discount the part that our media plays in that discount that that we as as a people with social media think it's things get proliferated so fast that before we can even uh figure out what's going on lies are being produced about that thing i believe it was charles spurgeon i'll paraphrase he said uh, a lie gets halfway around the world before truth even puts its boots on that is the reality that we face but here's the thing we can't pretend things aren't bad. We can't pretend there aren't dangers out there. We can't pretend there aren't things that literally will take our life if we are foolish or even if we do all of the right things. 
just as a really gruesome example, how many people who were driving according to the law at the speed limit met their end from somebody who was breaking the law by either speeding or driving intoxicated or driving without a license, some, some other reason that they shouldn't have been on the road in the first place. They weren't doing anything wrong. They were just, they were doing everything right. And yet still, there you go. How many people have taken the right medication to have an adverse, uh, adverse effect from it? These are doing the right things and having these things happen. Just because we make stupid decisions and we suffer consequences for them, doesn't mean that's all of every consequences as a result of a stupid decision. Sometimes life just carries danger that we don't anticipate always. And what the Bible never proposes and what David is not proposing and what I am not proposing and what the Lord Jesus Christ has never proposed is that we pretend life is okay. That we pretend that there are no dangers. That we pretend that there aren't real things that will take our life. Over the last couple of years, it doesn't happen very frequently, but it happens enough to go, hmm, I saw that. I read that. Someone's gone into a random church and opened fire. It happens. Not a lot. There are other reasons as to why it happens and explanations and all that thing. But nevertheless, it's happened. All around the world today, maybe not where we're living, but around the world, it's a common thing. To gather, because you're gathering illegally, you gather and the authorities show up. This is, this is the people in charge show up to disperse you as a church through violence if necessary. The Bible never tells us that this life will be comfortable, that we should seek the comfort in this life, that, that it is not real, the dangers we are going through. What the Bible tells us is that the world is very real, but that God is more real. In my notes, it literally, literally says, God is realer. Because in my public educated mind, I cannot think of a more bigger word. You see me struggling here. I can't even think of words to, to explain to you how God's reality and who he is is so much more than what we see. It's not that one exists and one doesn't. It's that one exists and one is bigger, grander. It is outrageously more immense than anything we know or see. This is David's confidence here. Not that, that life is not going through and just taking everything out of him or us. David's really running to caves and hiding. He's being sought and arrows are being shot. This is reality. We are going through COVID and illness and quarantine and pandemic and, and financial collapse and, and businesses that are going asunder and, and divorce and children that are going nuts and, and school systems that are doing their best and, and, and hospitals who don't know what they're going to do. So much realness, so much reality, yet God is more real. This is where we must place our feet. This is where David puts his feet. This is where we are to stand with the first sentence, in the Lord I take refuge. This man, this person, whoever it is. Now we may not have, well, let me take that back. We absolutely have so many things, especially if you're on social media, Facebook and Twitter, Twitter, Facebook is like, um, 
I used to manage a housing complex in California, and uh, it was a nice neighborhood, but there were some there were some people there who really made it their job to just make it really bad to live there. That's kind of what Facebook is like to me. It's not always bad, but for the most part, it's good. But then there's some people in their little cul-de-sac that just want to make everything miserable. Twitter is like if you take that place and put it in the upside down of Stranger Things and you just make it completely bad all of the time, every minute of the day. The only reason to ever say anything on Twitter is to never do that. Never, ever go on Twitter and say anything. Because you could say it's a good day and by the end of the day, you will be called a racist, homophobic, xenophobic, something or other. You will have all kinds of words hurled at you because you have said something so simple. I don't know why anybody uses Twitter. Uh, I know I get some updates on who's been traded and who's been signed in sports, and that's kind of good. But other than that, not getting a lot from Twitter. This is not about Twitter. This is not my tirade against social media giant Twitter. But nevertheless, we have this stuff piped into our life all the time. Hey, did you know that if you do this, you might die? Do you know that if you go swimming and you swallow a little bit of water, you could die later of dry drowning? Have you heard of dry drowning? If you're a parent, it's, it's scary. It's like, hey, your kid went swimming, right? Well, why did you write this article? Because it happened to a couple of people. And you might say, well, and you know, 350 million people and four dry drowned. Well, to the four, it mattered. It's a real thing. But nevertheless, it gets perpetuated and pushed and we see it and we hear it and we ingest it. And then that's where we stand. That's our fear now. That's who we are. You know, murder hornets. Murder hornets, they, they, they no longer exist apparently, but let's just dwell on them for just a moment. Last year, murder hornets were going to take us down. If COVID didn't take us down, it was going to be the murder hornets. Big giant. Now, I, I spent a good chunk of my life, I'd say in my 42 years, uh, three quarters of that time, pretty afraid of bees. Let me rephrase that. I spent two-thirds of my life deathly afraid of bees, and then maybe like a sixth, the latter half of the two-thirds, uh, or a little bit more, the last one-third, uh, where I was like, okay, bees exist, and I know we need them, pollination, all that good stuff, but I, you stay there, and I'll be here. And I, I just got to the point where I was a little more comfortable with bees. They're in my yard. Uh, Justin can tell you about the time he came to my house and, and got rid of all the bees at our house. And then this year, I went and did it myself. Like, that's where I grew in that, um, all the while wondering if Justin was available, but still did it. But then, murder hornets. Like, this is not fair. You got bees and wasps and murder hornets. They were huge, ginormous murder hornets. And I'm just like, this isn't fair. We should have a fighting chance, at least. These things will just take you out. And then all of a sudden there's videos. Like, oh, and their hives are as big as like uh, this whole platform. You're like, oh my gosh, how are they not just taking over? Well, because that's where fear took over. And in your mind, you're going to be attacked by murder hornets if you leave the house. And the reality was... Yeah, they found a couple, and they're a real thing, and they've always existed, and they're not called murder hornets. They're called Japanese something or other, hornets or something like that. Uh, murder was tacked on because you can't sell Japanese. That's racist so, or nationalist or something. It's some ist. And uh, so now we've got to call them murder hornets. The reality is this world is scary. There's scary things. There are things that happen all the time. 
There are things that we never anticipate happening. Some things are calculated, but some things are not. But David says this in verse 4, and this is, this is a huge transition. This is the more real realness of who God is. Verse 4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The verse 5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. The reality is, in all of the things that we might go through, all the things that we will experience, all the perceived threats, the real threats, and the imagined threats, the ones that could happen but will never really happen to us without some type of circumstance taking place first. This is the reality. God is still on his throne. And it's become a cliche for us as a people to say, well, God's on his throne. And, and, and when it becomes a cliche, it gets sapped of its power. The reality is God has not flinched. You ever, you ever play that as a kid and try not to try not flinch? You know, you do a thing or do one of those and somebody flinches. You're like, ha ha, you flinched. And that's the end of the game. <laughs> that's really all it is. Um, it, it, it's, it's a thing that you do and, and out of fear we, we jump or we hesitate. I had a friend once who came around a corner almost punched his elderly aunt in the face because they were coming to a corner and just like the old, you got peanut butter in my chocolate, you got chocolate in my peanut butter scenario, instead for him, he was like, I need to attack who's ever around this corner because nobody's supposed to be here. That was his flinch. That was his reaction. Luckily, he didn't do that. I'm not the person in this story, by the way. That's not my clever way of saying <laughs> I almost punched my elderly aunt in the face. Um, this is just a story I was told later. But we've all been in those moments where you, you and God never flinches. God never stops. God is never afraid. God's never like, I am for you and not against you. But you should have zigged when you zagged and now you're in trouble. I don't know what to do. God is unflinching on his throne. I don't know what it means by his eyelids are on the righteous. It seems almost as if his eyes are closed in calmness. I'll hold that with an open hand. I won't, I won't tell you that's gospel, but I will tell you that you see with your eyes, when your eyelids are involved, it's usually because they're closed. So maybe it's that he's so calm, so rested, so undeterred by our circumstance that he is not even concerned in the way that we would be concerned. Now he is concerned. I don't want to say that he's not but not in the way that he is fretting and worrying and, and scurrying to try to figure out how do I make this right? He is the everlasting God. He is the God who does not flinch. And this is the God in whom David takes refuge. And then David prays or says this imprecatory prayer. Now, if you don't know what that word means, that's okay. You'll only use it in this context. You'll probably never use it in your everyday life. It's literally to hurl down curses. It's literally to ask for bad for somebody. And there are lots of, well, I say lots, maybe 10 or 20, uh, imprecatory prayers or psalms in the word. And it seems to stand in conflict with the God who tells us to pray for our enemies, to love our enemies. I want to note that in God's word, where David is the human author, but the Holy Spirit is the true author, 
that God allows for David's humanness to still exist. David very much understands that by Saul coming after him, he's coming against God's decision, God's choice. And David is standing for the honor of the Lord. Now, if we make a post on Facebook and then like all these people get mad, we aren't standing for the honor of the Lord. This is completely different. David is supposed to be king. He's only done what is right and Saul wants to kill him. And so he calls upon, calls upon God to curse his enemies. He doesn't name Saul specifically. He doesn't name any one person specifically. Not that that doesn't happen in the word, but here in this moment, it doesn't happen. He says, my enemy, I think our number one enemy always is our flesh. I think it's okay to pray against our flesh. I think we should. Sometimes our flesh gets the best of us and we need to pray it down. Number two, we have Satan. Oh, we absolutely should pray against him. And the best way we can do that is by focusing on Jesus. Satan can only have the power to influence you when he has your attention. And he is content to just take your attention off of Jesus. He doesn't need you even have your attention on him. If your attention could be on murder hornets, you're going to stop looking at Jesus. If your attention's on the economy or your 401k or your future or your past or your present or what you're going to do next week or next year and what if this doesn't come through, then he's just stolen your attention away just long enough for you to forget that Jesus is the one who is in charge of all these things to begin with. David says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. The testing of the righteous and the hatred towards the violent and the, uh, and the wicked often look the same from the outside perspective. But from the perspective of God, what he has the righteous go through, which, by the way, how many of you identified with the righteous first and didn't identify with the lover of violence? That's just what we do. It's like with the, the four soils. We always assume we're the good soil. We never think of ourselves as being the other three soils. It's what we do. But nevertheless, David says that the Lord tests the righteous and our testing is going to look a lot like what the violent loving people are going through. But the purpose and the intention is completely different. One is to raise up. The other is to tear down. One is to make strong. The other is to weaken. And if we count ourselves amongst the righteous, which if we are in Christ, then we are in his righteousness. We've been gifted his righteousness, it's been imputed to us, that's the biblical term for it, then, then we are going to be tested. The Lord disciplines his children, the book of Hebrews says. It's what he do. And it may feel a lot like violence sometimes. It might feel a lot like pain. But it is testing for a purpose, not just to weaken or to destroy. Now the word says in Ephesians, I believe it's chapter 5 or chapter 6, that we do not battle or war against flesh and blood. That means the people that we perceive to be our, our, our enemy. Um, maybe it's a politician. Maybe it's the leader of a giant social media conglomeration. Maybe it's a, uh, a dictator halfway across the world. Whoever we perceive our greatest enemy to be, if they are flesh and blood, they're not our true enemy. Oh, they might be working on behalf of our enemies. They might be uh, doing enemy-like things. But we can pray these prayers for them. But... I want to I want to shed a new light on praying an imprecatory prayer for your enemy, your perceived enemy. 
What if we call on the destruction of their flesh, not that they would die and lose their life, but that their old self would die? What if we pray that they would die to their selves? That they would die in the sense that they would be born again unto Jesus? Think about whoever your greatest enemy is. And the last thing you want is any type of blessing for them. And you think, I just want, I just wish they weren't here. Oh, not a violent thing, not a bad thing, but, but life would be so much different and better without them. What if instead of them being eradicated, what if it was they were changed? What if they saw Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior? What if they in brokenness fell before their Lord and their God and then began to see Christ as you see Christ or even more clearly? To me, the destruction of that stronghold, that perception, that life is the thing that we should curse. Not that they would find their destruction, but that they, they would find their end in Christ and their beginning in Christ. I don't want to, I don't want to edit God's word. I don't want to, every commentary I read about in precatory prayers, everybody was trying to be like, well, you know, let's just gloss over them and make them a little more, you know, less threatening. No, no. They're, they're, they're big and they're, they're, they're dangerous and they are uh, real and they're violent at times, gnashing teeth against rocks and so forth. It's not a pretty picture. We aren't here to editorialize God's word. We're here to read it, to wrestle with it, and to accept it. Now, we should also stand for the honor of the Lord. Now, here's the good news about that. Because that sounds like we're going to go all gung-ho and, you know, sold out for Christ and all this other business and everything that in the late 90s, early 2000s, Christianity tried to perpetuate. God's more concerned with his honor than you are and can do more about it than you. But nevertheless, we must be of the position that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, we're going to go out and we're going to be who we are called to be. We're going to go into a crowd of non-Christians, but we're not going to change our life to the point where we act like the world. We're going to be nice and we're going to be kind and we're going to be cordial and we're going to be inviting and we're going to be serving all the things that Christ would have us to be. And the anomaly of it all will be we will love people because God loves them, not because they give us anything, not because it gives us a sense of self-worth or makes us feel good. It literally is because God loves them. We are honoring him, so we honor others. God will only be mocked and dishonored for so long, and then something will happen, and he'll bring his honor back. You need not worry that God will not uh, stand, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't stand from time to time. God is most honored, I believe. Again, this might be more opinion than biblical, but I'll let you make a choice. God is most honored when the wicked are set free from their wickedness. And I think that if we're going to pray, pray a prayer of destruction for our enemies, we should pray that they would see Jesus, that they would know him as their Lord and as their Savior. We pray that for our president and vice president. We pray that for members of Congress and the members of the Senate. We pray that for our local politicians. We pray that for any leader, any person who has influence or sway. You know, for the people who own Google and Twitter and Facebook and everything else that preoccupies our time, Apple and Samsung and 
whoever else, I don't even know. We pray that they would know Jesus. Because is it too much for Jesus to change their life? No. If we try to qualify our sin and their sin, well, they've, you know, what they've done way outweighs what I've ever done. Well, then we've missed the point. The point is Christ has come to save the sick, to heal the sick, to save the wicked, to free the wicked. And if someone is great in their wickedness, then all the more glory that Jesus will receive when they are set free from it. Lastly, David ends with a promise. And many times in the Psalms, the Psalms that David wrote, they end on, they end on the promise as we should do as well. He says, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. True or false, you can impress God. I would say false and say, well, if God knows everything, how do you impress? How do you impress somebody who doesn't expect some, or that expects everything? That's how we get impressed. You don't expect the cake to be so good, but somebody bakes the cake and it's delicious and it looks great. And you're like, wow, I'm impressed. Or somebody says, wow, I had no eggs, so I made this delicious cake. You're like, oh my gosh, this is delicious. This is great. Or, or they build something and they don't have an arm. And you're like, how'd you do that? I'm impressed. I did not expect you to be able to do something so extravagant. But how do you impress a God who knows everything and sees it? If you believe the sovereignty of God, we haven't done anything this morning that he didn't anticipate, that he doesn't know about. Have you ever seen the movie Spaceballs? Totally watch this movie as an eight-year-old, and this is the moment where it gets redeemed in my life. <laughs> There's a point in the movie where they watch the movie. It's ridiculous. And so they, because they're going to fast forward to see how things turn out. So they put it in the VCR. That's a thing. And they start watching it. And they get to a point where they're at the same point in the movie. So what they're doing is happening in the movie as well, because they're in current time. And then they move forward to the future to watch what's going to happen. The things that we're doing now, God anticipates. Me waving my arms like a lunatic up here is being seen by the Lord and anticipated by him. And at some point I'll stop. At a point where only he knows that I will do that. How do you impress a God like that? I believe the same way that our children impress us. I believe that that's a, a shadow, a foreshadowing of what it's like to, to impress God, your father. There are many times our children do things that we can do ourselves. Dad, I washed the dishes. Yeah, I've been washing the dishes for 20 years, buddy. Dad, I mowed the lawn. Yeah. No, I don't get to. Like there's so many things that we could just do. But when your child does it out of love and you go, man, I can do that. That's something that I could do. But you did it. And you did it because you love me and your family. It, t it just impresses you. It, it causes your heart to grow and your love for that child or those children to just grow. Not because they have performed great works. On the contrary, they've only done what you can do, but they've done so for a reason that transcends their own benefit. And I believe that it's absolutely capable or, or a possibility to impress God. If he likes good deeds, if he likes righteous deeds, and not just likes, he loves righteous deeds, then when we perform them, there must be an, a, a level of joy and an impressedness, if that's even a word, that he experiences in doing that. And that blows my mind that I could do anything 
that God who can do everything would go back and go, yeah, good job. I love that you did that. I love that you did that arm thing. I don't think he'll say that, but he might. And the upright shall behold his face. Now, again, I think this is one of those terms that for you and I, we don't, it's kind of lost all meaning on us. There's a lot of speaking of God's face and his face upon these people and seeing his face. And it's like, that's, that's really weird. Again, I'm going to point back to children. You know, if you've ever had a child who wanted your attention, you know, like you're playing video games or you're working on something and they're like, but dad, but dad, but dad. And you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm paying attention, but you're really not. You understand that what they're desiring in that moment is not you just watching them bounce around. They want your attention. They want you to see them. They want you to acknowledge them. They want you to affirm what they are doing. They want you to know that they exist and what they're doing is important. When I frame this verse in sort of that mindset, seeing God's face means so much more. That the attention that God has would be directed towards you and I. Not just collectively, but individually. God's attention is on you. Not because you have earned it. Again, our righteous deeds are only righteous because of Jesus. Not because we've done them, but because Jesus has changed us and imputed his righteousness to us. So now, as a result, the face of God, the, 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 the attention of God is on us. And for a moment, let that seep in. Holy moly, the Lord is looking upon you and I and watching us. And that should both be like, yay! And then also be like, oh no. Because he has seen some stuff that I wish I had not done. He has watched me handle things I should not handle. He's watched me walk into places I shouldn't walk into. He's, he's seen me see things that I shouldn't see. And the good news is that God loves us so much that he sends his only son to forgive us of those things that we have done. Imagine the cross as we get ready for Easter. You know, Lent started a couple weeks ago and, you know, we've got Good Friday coming up and Palm Sunday and the Holy Week and then Easter coming up. And for a moment, think of Jesus and how he was crucified and think about his feet being pierced for where we walked and his hands being pierced for what we've handled and, and the crown of his head being, being penetrated by thorns, the thoughts that we've had, he is crucified for. His back that was tore by the whips and the cat of nine tails and all of the different things. The back that, that, that is destroyed because we have carried the wrong things the life that is given because we have wasted our life in sin, that life is given for us. The things that we have seen, we have been forgiven for. The things that we've looked into, the things that we've handled and touched, the things that we've gone into, thinking that either it's okay or just being oblivious to the fact, doesn't matter. The Lord sends his son to die on our behalf and to conquer sin, Satan, and death that we might be forgiven. This is the gospel message of Jesus Christ that you are loved greatly by a great God who is more real than our circumstances. The enemy has taken too much of our time and, and too much of our attention and we have wasted it, unfortunately. But the, but the God that we serve, hallelujah and amen, redeems, takes back 
And if time has been spent in a wrong way, then may the next chunk of time, whatever that might be in our lives, be spent in the honor and the glorification of Jesus. May we adopt the mindset that David has, knowing full well the reality that awaits us as we leave these doors, but the more real reality that God is on his throne, unflinching, looking upon you and I because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That we would walk confidently and humbly before our Lord, loving and serving those we can love and serve. Let's stand together and let's pray. Let me pray for you as your pastor. It's my honor to to serve you and to pray for you. And again, so much of life has been turned upside down by COVID and things, and we're just going to do our best to truck along and and serve. And if you need things, if you are, we are doing our best to reach out and to find people where they are. Um, We appreciate your patience and all of that. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. You are so good to us. It is not enough, Lord, for me to come up here, though, and to just have a pep rally and try to get people pumped up about how good you are and how great you are. Lord God, I I, I can't and, and do not want any of that. I pray, Lord, today that your Holy Spirit would do exactly what your word is saying. Your word literally says that you look upon it to perform it. I am praying that that would happen in your people today. That we'd look out upon the world and we'd see the real fears that exist, the real pain, the real threats that are there, but then realize that you are more than those things. You are more real than those circumstances. You're bigger than COVID. You're bigger than any illness, any affliction. You're bigger than any economic downturn, any war, any relationship issue. You're bigger than all of these things. As much as these things might hurt, as much as these things might take and cost us, Lord, at the end of the day, you are bigger and more real than these things. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in these people's lives. I pray as they go out that they would walk in your blessing, that they'd walk in your goodness. I pray, Lord, for our enemies. We do not want them to dishonor you. For those who shout very loudly about what they think you are or who they think you are, We do not pray for their destruction in that their life would end. We pray that their first life would end, that they would be born again in the name of Jesus Christ to know you as Lord and as Savior. Lord God, I thank you that you are not limited to just believers because if that were the truth, none of us would be here. But Lord, you take dead people and you make them alive and I thank you for that, Lord. We are praying for this miracle to continue throughout our communities, even in our own homes, Lord, that people would know you as Lord and Savior, that we would be instruments and tools in your hands, conduits of your love. May you receive the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, church. God bless you. The Lord is